Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Mark 12, 1 to 12. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Kevin. Good morning. Happy Valentine's Day. I hope that's not a shock to some of you men, husbands out there. Oh, no. We've been in our house 17 years or so, and when we moved in, we planted a peach tree. We've always enjoyed having a peach tree. And so we put that peach tree in, and after two or three years, it started producing some fruit. Some years were really good, some years not so great, but it was pretty fruitful. But we began to notice over time that the lower part of the tree kept dying and it kept getting taller and taller. I would trim it, work on it, uh, but whatever fruit there was ended up higher and higher as the lower parts of the tree kept dying. We finally discovered, finally had someone look at it, and we discovered that it had tree borers. They were killing the lower part of the tree and eventually all the tree. So eventually we had to cut that tree down and plant a new one. This parable we're looking at this morning is a profound story that's much like our peach tree. It's a story of God's working with his people and in particular with the Jewish leaders. He patiently waits to enjoy some of the fruit of the vineyard which he has planted. But in the end, he has to remove not the vineyard, but the leaders and start fresh. But I don't think Jesus intended this as a rebuke just to the Jewish leaders, so that is the most direct application. I think it's a challenge to us today. 
It's a challenge for us to consider, are we truly building our lives on the cornerstone? Or are we selfishly trying to keep the fruits of life to ourselves? Pray with me. Lord, this is a powerful parable that Jesus told, and we need you to open our eyes to the depth of what it means for us today. May your spirit be opening our hearts and our minds to understand what you have for us, because we do want to build our lives on you on the cornerstone. But so many things get in the way. Lord, use this today. Thank you that your word is powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can penetrate the very depths of our hearts. May it do so today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it says, he began to speak to them in parables. Jesus liked to speak in parables, didn't he? It was a way he communicated truth. Mark doesn't include very few parables, which suggests that the ones he does include, like this one, are really important. A parable is a way that Jesus used to teach truth that comes into the mind, not directly, but through the imagination. See, I think that's why it's so significant. Storytelling is so important. Parables are so valuable because it gets into your mind so that it can get to your heart more easily because it enters through the imagination. Therefore, it goes deeper. It engages more of your brain. To learn truth from a parable. And this parable, it, it's pretty direct, right? I mean, some parables you look at and you say, I have no clue what he's talking about. It's really hard to make the connections, but this one's pretty direct, right? I mean, God's the owner who plants the vineyard. Israel, God's people throughout time is the vineyard. The tenants, the farmers are the Jewish leaders. And the servants that are sent over and over again are the prophets of God who were sent to Israel over and over through history. And then Jesus, of course, is the son who was sent. So we can match up pretty well who he's talking about. But but the truth is very profound once we begin to dig into it. I want to look first in this parable and see what we learn about the Jewish leaders. But Let's set the context a bit first. We look at it and and we see that he's saying God has planted Israel as the people of God. He very carefully planted this vineyard, the people of God. Notice the effort that the owner went into it. He planted it. He fenced it. He dug a pit for wine to be produced. He worked it and he prepared it. Every opportunity is given for this vineyard to produce fruit. Why a vineyard? Well, I think it's very significant. A vineyard produces wine, right? (laughs) Uh, Wine is a symbol in Scripture of joy, of celebration, of life, of success, fulfillment, fellowship, oneness. It's a beautiful picture of all of that. And the Jewish people are meant to be the vineyard for the world. See, a vineyard isn't just existing for itself. It's meant to produce something. It's meant to produce life to the world, to bring joy to the world, to bring the truth of God's life that's available, God's blessing to the world. It's a place where people come to be 
blessed. It's reminiscent of Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham and calls him to not just be blessed, but to be a blessing. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house. This is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. To the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, the purpose of the vineyard isn't just to be a happy place to hang out. (laughs) It's meant to be something that produces life that others can enjoy. And so Jesus, as he begins his parable, says a man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress, built a tower and rented it out to vine growers. He's quoting Isaiah chapter five. And I want to read Isaiah chapter five, because this is in Jesus's mind as he states this, as he gives this. And it it sets the context for everything he says in this parable. Isaiah chapter five. Isaiah is saying, let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, a cry of distress. See, in Isaiah 5, it's clear the vineyard is Israel, God's chosen people. But he's saying, because I'm not finding fruit there, there's no righteousness, there's no justice. Therefore, I will destroy my vineyard. I will lay waste the nation. And he did. It wasn't that long after Isaiah prophesied that prophecy that the northern kingdom was wiped out kingdom of Israel. And then a while later in 586 BC, the Southern kingdom was wiped out. He wiped out his kingdom. Judah was taken to exile. Jerusalem and its temple destroyed. So Jesus quotes this because he knows these Jewish leaders will know the story. (laughs) But notice his applications a little different, right? It isn't the vineyard that gets destroyed in this parable. It's only the leaders, the tenants, the farmers that get removed. And he replaces those leaders of God's people with others, he says. The apostles, the Gentile leaders over the centuries, church leaders. You see, God's people are now the combination of the church and Jewish believers, Gentile Jewish believers who are one In Christ, but he's put new leadership because the Jewish leaders had failed to produce the fruit that God called them to produce. God's church will continue. 
we see in the parable. It will continue, but the leaders change if they refuse to be godly. So what do we learn about the Jewish leaders from this parable that he gives? Well, first, notice that they refuse to give the owner the produce of the land, the produce of the vineyard. They refuse to give the owner what is rightfully his. He owns it. They should be passing on the fruit of the vineyard, but they refuse to. We also see how they treat his servants, his representatives terribly. And of course, these are the prophets, as we've said. He, they treat them horribly. They kill them. They beat them. And we know from the history of Israel, the prophets were terribly, terribly oppressed and beaten and hurt and hurt by the Jewish establishment, the Jewish leaders. And then he says in the parable, when the son is sent, they kill the son. They take him and throw him out of the vineyard so that his body will rot outside the vineyard. They do not even bury him. You see, let me read seven and eight. Those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Notice what they're saying. They're saying the vineyard will be ours if we kill the heir. So what they are assuming is that the owner has died. The owner's dead. He's out of the picture. And the son has come to claim his inheritance. This is my vineyard. And he shows up and they think if we kill him, it'll all be ours. We'll have it all to ourselves. In other words, What Jesus is saying about the Jewish leaders is they want the blessing of God. They want to live in the vineyard. They want it all for themselves. But they don't want to honor the owner. They don't want to honor God. They want to take his place and become the owners themselves. They want to put themselves in God's position. You see, the Jewish leaders and all their religiosity and and doing all the temple rituals and all the things, sacrifice and everything they did in their religiosity, Jesus is saying, it's not for God at all. It's for themselves trying to build their own kingdom, trying to make life work apart from God so that they don't need him. (laughs) And isn't this the sin of man from the very beginning? from Adam and Eve in the garden where the serpent convinced them, you know, God's holding out on you. You can be like God. (laughs) You can take his place if you'll just eat of the fruit. Of course, Satan is a liar, but mankind ever since, it isn't just Jewish leaders, is it? It's all of us ever since have said, I want life my way on my terms. I want to run life my way. I want the vineyard for myself and not have to bow to you, God. That's in the heart of every man. I will run my own life. And you'll notice religion is one of the great tools for excluding God from our lives. Isn't that interesting? We can be very religious like the Jewish leaders. And the whole purpose is to leave God out. So in verse nine, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the vine growers, the farmers, and will give the vineyard to others. So the Jewish leaders are finally removed because they've usurped God's place in the vineyard. And as such, they represent all of us, all mankind, not just the Jewish leaders, not just the Jews, but all of us who have rejected the knowledge of God and have said, we will build our own Tower of Babel. We will reach heaven somehow. We will take God's place. 
and worship ourselves ultimately. Paul says this very thing in Romans chapter 1 as he's describing what mankind has done that the Gentiles have done exactly like the Jews have done. As it talks about in 118, Romans 118 and following, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness because what's known about God has been revealed to them. Every person knows that God is there, but we've suppressed that truth. We've become foolish and we've exchanged the glory of God to worship an image, it says, essentially to worship ourselves, mankind. And so because we've done that, we have to realize as we read this parable that the Jewish leaders are us. It isn't just those bad guys. It's us. What do we learn about God from this parable? Well, first of all, you see how God created a world, this vineyard, this place in which he longs to bless his people, the Jews, but also all who are grafted in us Gentiles as well so that we can be a blessing to all nations. He plants a vineyard and he gives it every opportunity to be fruitful, to be successful. All the conditions are right. Notice we see how also how incredibly persistent and patient God is. How he, over the years, keeps sending servants, sending prophets, sending those to woo us back, to woo the Jewish people, and ultimately us back. He sends prophet after prophet who gets rejected and eventually sends his son. Uh, This parable covers a period of at least 1,400 years of God reaching out, reaching out again and again and again. The word sent, 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 sent. God sent over and over and over again and then sent a multitude over and over again from Moses to Jesus. And things get worse over time, but he keeps sending. Do you realize how incredibly patient and persistent God is with us? We keep failing. We keep turning our backs on him. We keep wanting to run our own lives. And he keeps reaching out in his love and his grace and his mercy. We see in this parable that God also longs for reconciliation. He longs for it so much that, you see, that's the point. He doesn't want the fruit necessarily of vineyard. He wants a healed relationship. He goes out of his way to reach his wayward ones because he longs for reconciliation. We see also in this parable that God deeply loves his son. Twice he's called the beloved. I'll send my beloved son, my beloved son. He loves the son. And I think that's very significant because when he sends the son, realize how hard it is for him. Sometimes we think, oh, God's up there. May he send his son. It's, was easy. It was not easy. It was the hardest thing that God could ever have done to send his beloved son to the vineyard, to this world. What else do we learn about God? He's insane. <laughs> I mean, he's foolish. After all the history, why would you send your son into that place? He's reckless. He's wild. He's unreasonable in his love. It makes no sense to send the son. You know what they're going to do to your own son. All for the sake of a relationship. He's crazy. He's passionate in his love. What he's doing is so unreasonable. It just makes no sense. It's it's a thousand times the parental love that just can't give up on a child. He, he just can't give up. 
on us. And let me say, we talk about this. We talk about the incredible love, the crazy love of God. But the key to our spiritual life and growing in our spiritual life is is grasping the depths, the heights, the widths, the length of his love for you. The undeserved love of God. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 prays this for the Ephesians. Because he longs for them to know God's love in this way. Starting in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, Paul writes. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. I hope that's a prayer that you pray for yourself and for others, that you might know the height and the width and the depth, to to know the love of God, which surpasses, his knowledge, to know it in a way that's not head knowledge, he says, but it grips your life in such a way it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to grasp God's love at that level. I hope you've been gripped by the love of God in a way that has left you stunned. There's been some times I've experienced that. Some of you have heard my story, but I'll tell it again because for me it was a very profound event. A foolish one, but a profound one. And it's my lawnmower story. (laughs) We lived in our old house and we were scraping by. Things were kind of tight. I bought a used lawnmower. It worked a little while and it quit. Well, I wanted to be wise. I wanted to be a good steward. And so I worked on it to try to fix it, to get it to work. Just wouldn't work. Had a neighbor who was a teacher who had been a teacher of small engines in high school. So he knew how to work it. We tore that thing apart, put it back together, tried to start it, and it would not start. He said, there's no reason why this shouldn't start. Uh, It's been rebuilt. It's fine. Everything's fine. Why won't it start? And it wouldn't start. And I tried everything. And this became a fixation for me. (laughs) I had to get this lawnmower to start. I talked to people, I researched, I tried to figure out how to get this lawnmower to start, and it would not start. And one day I was in my garage, I was alone in my garage, and I tried everything. I was at the end of my rope, literally. (laughs) Tried several times to pull it, and then I was so angry, and I realized I was angry at God. God, I've done everything. I have tried everything. I have done everything to get this to work, and... And, you know, could I have gone and bought a new lawnmower? Sure. But this was the problem. And I had to get this to start, and it would not. And I was so angry. I've never been so angry at God. And I knew it, and I was furious, and I was so mad. And I grabbed the rope, and I pulled, and it started. And right then, I knew I was at my very worst. Right then, I knew I did not deserve anything but hell. I did not deserve anything from God, and he allowed that to start. And literally, I sank to my knees and began weeping because I was struck by the love of God that I did not deserve. In fact, I deserved far worse. I deserved hell, and I knew it. 
But at that point, I was stunned by a God who would give me grace at my worst. Unless you've been faced with your worst and experienced God's love even there. Not sure you understand God's love. We need to be gripped, stunned, overwhelmed by the love of God that surpasses all understanding. If we are really to know him. But then the parable goes on. And in verse 9, it says, what will the owner do? He'll come and destroy the vine growers. God is loving, but is also righteous and just. We'd rather talk about God's love, right? But God is a holy God. He's righteous and just. And the only way he can even endure us is because of the son taking on our sin, becoming sin for us. But in the end, God's love is such that he gives us what we choose. And if we choose, like the tenants in the vineyard, to keep resisting and turning our backs on him and going our own way and controlling our own lives, eventually he gives us what we have chosen, which is an eternity separated from him. Hell itself. God is sovereign, but he will also not override our free will. We can choose to submit to his love. See ourselves as we really are. See him as he really is. Or we can choose to reject him and try to run our own lives apart from him. We can choose eternal separation from him. It's our choice. But just understand, judgment is coming. God can only endure evil for so long, rejection of him for so long, and he will eventually judge it. Forty years after Jesus spoke these words, These very leaders, those that were still alive, all of them pretty much were killed. The temple was destroyed as the Jews rebelled, as they finally said, we're not trying to trust you, God. We're not going to submit to your Messiah. We are going to take life in our own hands. We are going to rebel against the Romans. You better get on board with our agenda, God. And the nation was destroyed. Verse 10 and 11, then Jesus quotes this passage from Psalm 118 as Adrienne said, have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You see, God's plan all along was to make Jesus the cornerstone or the capstone. We aren't sure if it's the cornerstone that lays the corner of the foundation upon which everything else is built. Or if it's the very capstone, which is the last stone that holds it all together in like a Roman arch, the center stone, that it'll all collapse without that stone there. Either way, it's Jesus being the central stone. Everything now, everything now depends on how you respond to the sun. Psalm 118 is a great psalm of praise over a surprising victory of God. It's, it's a wonderful psalm of praise And in these verses in the psalm, the psalmist is saying, wow, and and God has reversed things. The people have rejected the cornerstone, but it's the very cornerstone that God has used to rebuild our lives and our kingdom. God takes what looks terrible and keeps his vineyard going, Jesus says, but with new leadership. (laughs) And the key to this new leadership is, are you building your life on the cornerstone? Are you building your life? on him or not. The, the vineyard will continue. The kingdom of God will continue. No matter what man does, God will not allow his kingdom to fail. 
The sins of man cannot hinder the purposes of God, but we have a choice whether we individually will be part of that kingdom or not. And it's all dependent on how we respond to the Son. So what do we learn about ourselves from this parable? Well, God has planted the people of God. The Jews and now Jews, Gentiles today were the vineyard grafted in together. One people who are the new people of God together. Those who have trusted in Jesus, who is the cornerstone. And we are here as the vineyard to be a blessing to all the nations, to the world around us, not to hoard the blessings of the vineyard for ourselves but rather to give our lives away and give what we've been given away as we look forward to the true blessing of heaven because we have that hope. So we're able to not hoard, but to give away freely. That's God's plan. That's why God blesses us with his life and his presence. But we need to ask personally, is there something of the farmers in us, the tenants, the vine growers? We can too easily be like the Jewish leaders, right? We get so caught up in holding on to God's blessings. Yeah, I want to be comfortable. I want to be happy. I want want my blessings. That we reject God's messengers to us over and over again to give our lives away, to walk in the way of the cross, to deny ourselves, to give up our life that we might receive it. So eventually we can be like the Jewish leaders and take God's place. So the key for us today is to repent, to turn back, to submit to Jesus as our cornerstone, to build our lives on him. And this means being willing to follow him into rejection, to be willing to be thrown out of the vineyard, so to speak, to give up our rights for the sake of a world that the father loves. You want to understand all of history. This parable gives it. It's not just the history of the Jewish people, is it? It's the history of all of us. God planted his people in the world to be a blessing to the entire world and to reveal his love for all mankind to the world. But man has rejected God and has tried to find his own way to be God and to control God, to take his place so we could have life on our terms. But God the Father has kept reaching out to us over and over and over and over again. Every man knows in his heart the truth, we're told in Romans chapter 2. God reaches out with his crazy, insane, unreasonable love over and over again and offers grace and offers life. He so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but receive the free gift of eternal life. But as he also says in that same passage in John chapter 3, verse 18, If you have not received the Son, if you haven't believed in the Son, you've been judged already. You're already living separated from God. He will give you what you choose. Life apart from Him eternally, if that is what you choose. So the question for each of us today is, what are we doing with the Son? Are we building our lives on Him? Are we seeing Him as the cornerstone? Or are we tossing Him out to try to make life our own way? Paul wrote in first in Philippians chapter one, verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. I think it's worth meditating on that passage a bit and think about, you know, if for me, life is money. If you're building your life on money and that's your security and that's your life, 
To die is poverty. <laughs> you can't take any of it with you. If you're building your life on other people, getting them to like you or getting close, and, and, and that is your foundation, you've got to have that, then death is loneliness, separation. If you're building your life on status or image as your cornerstone, wanting to look good in other people's eyes, then to die is to die in absolute obscurity, to be forgotten. If you're building your life on power, control, I've got to stay in control of my life, then to die is absolute powerlessness. If you're building your life on pleasure, I need to feel good, I need comfort, I need my life to feel good, then to die is loss, pain. If you're building your life on yourself, death is emptiness. Only building your life on the cornerstone, only in Christ, will death be gain. What are we building our lives on today, brothers and sisters? Let's pray. Lord, this parable is such a challenge to our comfortable lives. We tend to live here in America in 2016. It's hard sometimes to be able to set that aside and truly build our lives on you. But Lord, please reveal to us where we're building our lives on other things besides you and help us learn what it means to be willing to walk with you, to walk in your footsteps, to be rejected so that for us to live might be Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.